0: Um, when I was uh, growing up, my, my family, we had a boat, and we loved to water ski and wakeboard and kneeboard and all these things, and uh, it was something we did like almost every weekend, and I think I've actually used this story before in a sermon because it's just a good story. So anyways, if you've heard it before, I'm sorry, uh, but I remember my dad loved to take people with us out on the boat, and so we, we often would take other families with us on a Saturday, and my, my dad loved trying to teach people who'd never water skied before how to water ski, and so I remember there was this one family that we took with us, and uh, they, they were a family from church and they had three kids, a daughter that was my age and two brothers that are a little bit younger than me. And uh, I was probably in middle school or, or late elementary at this point. And uh, we're trying to teach them how to water ski. Well, one of the brothers got it. He was so excited about learning. He got up and so his younger brother was like, I'm totally going to do that. And So he gets in the water and he's like super eager to learn how to water ski. And so if you've ever water skied before, then you know the trick is you let the boat pull you out of the water. And so you literally, you're just laying back, relaxing, and you have to let the boat do the work of pulling you up. If you try to stand up yourself, the same thing will happen every single time. You will fall forward and you will get a face full of water. And we tried to explain this to this boy. My dad's patiently trying to teach him. And I remember the first time, it's always the same first time they try to stand up. This kid tried to stand up. And as he went forward, my dad had told him, like, if you go forward, just let go of the rope. And so my dad, he's like, You ready? He's like, Yeah, I'm ready. He's sitting back there, and my dad hits the throttle, he comes up out of the water, tries to stand up, goes face first into the water, but he did not let go of the rope. And it was like water is just inundating this kid's face. I mean it's just. so my dad like pulls back on the throttle and we circle back around, we're like, You okay? He's like, Yeah, I want to try it again. My dad's like, let go of the rope and don't try to stand up. And so we, I bet we did that like five times. And every time it was the same exact result, kid would try to stand up, face plant into the water. Like water just rushing up on his face. My brother and I are trying not to laugh, you know, because the poor kid is just getting like a nose enema or something. I mean, it's just like water is just going everywhere. And so, but the thing about this kid is that he wasn't doing something stupid. He wasn't doing something stupid. He was actually doing what seemed to make the most sense. On water skiing, you're standing on skis. It seemed in his mind just to make sense that if he wanted to get on his feet, that he should stand up. See, water skiing actually has this counterintuitive element to it And that you want to get on your feet except you don't try to stand up. You let the boat do the work. He thought he had to do the work, and he could not let go of that idea that he was supposed to do the work. Water skiing, is, it's counterintuitive. And For several weeks now, we have been talking about who God is his attributes. We're in this series called God Is, and we're exploring the indescribable character of who God is. And today we're going, to be, we're going to be talking about, man, how does that God relate to us, and how do we relate to him? And what we're going to see is that sometimes the way that we relate to that God is totally counterintuitive, much like my friend on the water skis. And we'll unpack that as we go, a little recap on where we are in the series. So we've just been talking about Who God is, what he's like, what is his character. We base the whole thing out of Exodus chapter 34. And so in Exodus 34, God reveals himself by name. And so up until this point, we have only looked at the name of God. This place where he says, the Lord, the Lord, it's Yahweh, Yahweh. And we've looked at the name of God and all that it says about who he is We've said, man, this name of God, Yahweh, the great I am, there's this inherent implication of God's limitlessness. And so we've said that Yahweh, the the eternal God, he he is limitless in time, he's eternal. He's limitless in power, he's the all-powerful. He's limitless in knowledge, he knows all things. He's limitless in resources, he is all-sufficient, he is always faithful. This is the nature of who he is that we get from looking just at his name, Yahweh. So much packed in there. But now the question has to be asked, how does this almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God relate to us? And maybe more importantly, how do we relate to him? These are the two questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. You know, uh, this week we're going to read Exodus 34, and we're going to notice that God, he shifts from proclaiming his name to describing what he's like. And what you'll see is that every word, every word he uses to describe himself just drips with rena- relational overtones. Let's just look, Exodus 34, we'll read the scripture. We've read it every week in this series, so we'll start here. Exodus 34, verse six, Moses is on the mountain. God is revealing himself to Moses and proclaiming who he is, and this is what it says. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember, anywhere you see the Lord in all caps in your Bible, that is the name of God. It is Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. And so this morning, we start with how does this God, this Almighty, how does he relate to us? And I want you to notice the very first words he uses to describe his nature are the words compassionate and gracious. Compassionate and gracious. This morning, as we try to understand how he relates to us, we're going to look at those two words. We're going to unpack what they mean. We're also going to look at what some other biblical writers, how they understood those words and what they meant. And then we'll just look at some some of God's actions in the Bible to see if his actions line up with those attributes. Let's just start with the words, compassionate and gracious. These two words are intentionally connected as God reveals himself. They're intentionally connected. The first word, compassionate, it's a feeling word. It is describing something that God experiences in his heart, something he feels. You know God? Did you know God feels? He has a heart. He feels. And compassionate describes something that he experiences, something he feels. And gracious is an action word. It is what he does in response to what it is that he feels. Okay, let's start with compassionate. Let's start with this feeling word. Compassionate, the English word compassionate comes from Latin. It literally means to suffer with. To suffer with. Compassionate means this. It means to be aware of someone else's suffering or pain and to choose to enter into it. To be fully aware of someone else's suffering and pain and to choose to enter into it. The, the Hebrew word that is used here is rahum, and it's, it shares the same root word as the word for a mother's womb, a mother's womb. And so, I want you to I want you to get here what, what the what the language is after here. What it's trying to to capture is that the experience, the feeling of God, has the same kind of tenderness that a mother has for the child that she just gave birth to. There's this deep tenderness. This is such good news that the almighty, all-powerful God that is so far beyond us, he is moved by suffering. He is moved by loss. He is moved by pain. And when he feels it, he comes alongside of it. He's compassionate. He is one who suffers with. Then you get to this word gracious. Remember, this is the action. So if compassion is what he feels, graciousness is what he responds with. To be gracious means to show grace, or to show favor. We kind of understand this in in Christianity where you talk about grace as like a free, unearned gift. But when you see this in the way God describes himself, he says he's compassionate and gracious. Have you ever wondered where this free, unearned gift comes from? God's grace is birthed out of the compassion that he has on humanity. This is the same God that we've been talking about. This is the all-powerful, the one that is so big that doesn't answer to anyone, the one that is eternal, that's always has been, always will be, the one who knows you and everything about you. This is how he relates to us. He's compassionate. He feels our pain, our sorrow, our suffering, and he draws near and he responds with graciousness, this free, unearned favor and gift. This is one of maybe the most important moment in all of the Hebrew scriptures. This is where God gives humanity a self-proclaimed description of what he is like. And he starts with this, compassionate and gracious. There's a reason, while the biblical writers throughout the rest of the Bible will quote this passage more than any other passage in the Bible, It's referenced more than any other passage in the Bible over and over again because they're reminding themselves of this attribute of God. So one of the places that we see this quoted is in Psalm 103. So if you have your Bibles, you wanna turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, it's written by David. Uh, David was a shepherd, he was a poet, he was a singer. He was also a warrior who would become the greatest king Israel knew, and he wrote many of the Psalms that we have. And in Psalm 103, he is trying to wrestle with the attributes of God, who he is, and what he's like. And I love, we're going to start in in verse 7. This is what David says He says, He made known, he is Yahweh. Yahweh made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. These verses should sound familiar. This is literally just David quoting Exodus chapter 34. Keep reading. Look at verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us According to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is amazing. He says, he says, he says, beloved, that the the, the almighty God, the all-powerful God, he does not repay us according to our sins and our iniquities. He says he does not see that. He not, that's not how he operates. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So great is his love for those who fear him. Now, we're going to come back and talk about that word fear in a little bit, and we we'll talk about how we relate to him. But what I want us to see, he says, man, for those who understand who I am, For those who understand who I am, he says, I remove your iniquities. As as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much love I have for you. I forgive your sins. I forgive your trespasses. This is the compassionate and the gracious God. He's not this vengeful, angry God who's sitting up there just waiting for the moment where he gets to zap somebody because of the thing they did wrong. This is not how the Bible describes Yahweh God. Keep reading what David says. Look in verse 13. This is beautiful. As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust, that the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, Yahweh's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. What David says here in Psalm 103 is he's going, Hey, Yahweh actually knows how fragile and frail humanity is. He understands that when we stand before the eternal, almighty, all-powerful creator God, that we are like a blink of an eye to him. That our days on earth are no more than like the grass on the field from his perspective. He understands that we are like dust because he made us from the dust. And this can feel kind of demeaning, like, wait a minute, he thinks I'm just dust? But look how he responds. He understands how frail and how fragile the human life is. And he responds with tenderness. He's compassionate. He's gracious. I'll never forget, this this reminds me so much, I'll I'll never forget the first time I held one of my newborn babies. I have four kids. And I'll never forget the moment I held all four of them. But the moment I held my oldest, it was the first time I had ever held my own newborn child. You know, some of you, when you read this passage, you know, uh, verse, what is it? Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, some of you, you've had fathers who were absent. And this sounds like a terrible metaphor. Some of you have had fathers who were present, but they were mean with their words, they were distant with their emotions. Some of you have been hurt traumatically by your fathers. And this feels hard to understand. And what, what the Bible is trying to say is, no, listen, Yahweh God, he, he redeems everything that is broken about a human male's attempt to be a father where he's fallen short. And when I read this, I can't help but think of the moment I became a father. I'll never forget standing there and my oldest son Elijah had been born and the midwife hands him to me and I'd never held a newborn baby. And, and I remember just looking at him And he couldn't even control his little limbs yet, you know, and like the little cry coming out of his voice was so pathetic and he was so small. And I remember holding him and just being like, man, if I do one wrong thing, like I could, if I dropped him, he would be harmed for the rest of it. Like I could, I could damage him permanently. Like he's so fragile. And I remember just taking him and putting him on my chest and just holding him and rocking with him. And I didn't want anything to happen to him. I loved him. I didn't even know that I could love somebody like I loved this baby. This is the imagery that David is using to describe Yahweh God. He looks at us. He realizes how frail, how fragile we are in comparison to him and all of his glory. And how does he respond? He's like a father or a mother of a newborn child that just holds that baby so close, hoping that nothing could ever happen to it. And he seeks to protect us. God responds to us with the utmost of tenderness. This is who Yahweh God is. Now, how does this line up with what we see of God's behavior throughout the rest of the Bible? I wish, I know I say this every week, I wish we had two hours where we could just sit and unpack story after story after story of the gracious and compassionate God as seen in the Bible. But I asked the Lord, like, Lord, like, is, there, is there one or two stories? Are there one or two stories that I could use? And the first story that came to me was, felt kind of random, honestly. Uh, it's the story of a woman named Hagar. And so I don't know if you know the story of Hagar. If you want to turn your Bibles to Genesis 16, we're going to look at the story of a woman named Hagar very quickly and very briefly. But I'll have to tell you a little bit about Hagar is before we can read uh, Genesis 16 about her. And so in, in, at this part of Genesis... We find out about two of two really of like the main characters in the Old Testament. I mean, a guy named Abraham and a guy named Sarah. Their names were Abram and Sarai. When you meet them, their names get changed. But most people have heard of Abraham. And the reason they have is because Abram, when his name is Abram, God comes to him, Yahweh comes to him, and he covenants with him, and he says, hey, listen, I'm going to bless you, and your offspring will become a great nation, and all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your family. So Abram's family would become the nation of Israel, through whom God wanted to bless all nations in the name of Jesus. Okay? So it's a big moment in the story of the Bible. You see, Abram, the thing about it is when God comes to him and says, I'm going to make your offspring into a great nation, Abram's like 75 years old. His wife is 65, and they've never had any kids. <laughs> and so they hear the promise, and Abram believes it, but Sarai, right, you know, for good reason, she begins to wonder, like, how could this really happen? And so in chapter 16 of Genesis, she comes to her husband, she says, listen, I know what God said, you know, our kids are going to be a great nation, yada, yada, yada. She goes, but look... 65 years old, which, by the way, she'd be 90 before she actually had a kid. She's 65. She says, look, I've never had a kid for you. How about this? I got, I got an idea. How about you take my slave, Hagar? Now, this is where Hagar comes into the story. She's a female slave to Sarah. And Sarah says, hey, Abram, why don't you take my slave, sleep with her, and then when she has a kid, I can have a family for you through this kid. In other words, what she's saying is, hey, use my slave in order to fulfill God's promises so I can give you a family. And so Abram does it, which by the way, if you've ever read the Bible and you think that the Bible is a story about a bunch of heroes who were just really awesome, did everything right all the time, this is a great example of how that is not true. (laughs) Abram and Abraham, he he was not the hero of the story. God is the hero. Okay, Abram royally screws up in this. He goes and he sleeps with Hagar. He gets her pregnant. And then Sarai, big shocker, gets jealous. And she starts thinking, oh, now my husband's going to love this woman more than he loves me. So she starts to mistreat her slave. She comes to Abram. She's like, now look what's happening. This is your fault. You know, you slept with her. And you can imagine how Abram felt. He's like, wait, well, you told me to sleep with her. Now you're mad at me because I slept with her. It's just a mess. It's a mess. But I want you to see how does God respond in the face of the mess? Look with me, Genesis 16. Uh, we'll start in verse 6. This is, this is Abram's response to Sarai. He says, listen, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, So she fled from her. Listen to this, verse seven. The angel of Yahweh found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I love this moment. Yahweh God, he comes and he finds this woman. She wasn't looking for God. She was running for her life. Yahweh sees her in her pain. He sees her in her fear. He sees her in a place where she's been abused and mistreated and cast aside, and he draws near to her and he begins to discuss with her. It's so similar to what happens in the Garden of Eden in chapter, Genesis chapter 3, where God comes looking and he goes, Adam, where are you? He already knows. He's engaging. So he says, Where are you going? Keep reading. I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of Yahweh told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Skip down to verse 13. She gave this name to Yahweh who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Now there's so much happening in the story. We don't have time to unpack and preach the whole thing. But here's what I want you to see. Through no fault of her own, Hagar, who in in the ancient Near East, she was a woman, so she already had one strike against her. Two, she was a slave, so she had two strikes against her. Three, she was pregnant with a child that was not her husband's, and she'd been cast out by those who employed her or owned her. So she had everything going against her. She would have been looked at as a cast-aside object in this society. And how does Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, he looks for her? He finds her. He blesses her. He he says, hey, that that promise I had for Abram, I'm actually going to put some of that on you. And now your offspring is also going to grow into a great nation. He extends the blessing to her. And then Hagar becomes the first person in the Bible to ascribe a name to God. Now, his name is Yahweh. Yahweh. But a lot of times throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, when somebody has an encounter with God where they see who he is, they will put a name on him, which which is a major deal in ancient culture. And God allows Hagar to give him a name, and the name is Elroy, the God who sees me. The compassionate and gracious God, he looks for her, he finds her, he blesses her, and he even allows her to name him. Now, we could go through the Old Testament scriptures. scriptures. We could find story after story after story like this. Of how the compassionate and gracious God, I mean, even the story that we're basing this series out of, when God reveals himself by this name in Exodus 34, if you were with us last week, you remember Israel had just broken their wedding vows, their covenantal vows with God on the day they made the covenant. Like, they break the vows with him, and God responds by revealing himself as the compassionate and gracious God, and he renews the covenant with them. This is just who he is. And you read through the scriptures, you see this over and over again, and by the time you get to the New Testament, you get the clearest picture of how does Yahweh God respond to the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion, the pain, the loss, and the sorrow of humanity. He's compassionate and he's gracious. Enter Jesus Christ onto the scene. Jesus is the perfect picture of a God who feels compassion and responds with graciousness. He draws all the way near. He comes into our pain. He puts on flesh and walks on the earth as Jesus Christ. God becomes man and walked amongst us. Now, we could just look at the whole life of Jesus and see over and over again how he is the compassionate and gracious God. But there's a little story that I love that happens in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus living into the attributes of being compassionate and gracious, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35. <clears throat> this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now here's what you need to know. Jesus is traveling throughout villages that are outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been the center of religious life, of elite life in Israel society. Jesus goes to the outskirts, to the fringes, to the nobodies, to the cast-asides. He goes to the people who were constantly told they were not worthy to come into God's presence. And Jesus goes to them. He teaches them. He heals their sick. He casts out demons. He proclaims good news about the God who is compassionate and gracious and has come near. So this is what we see happening in Matthew 9. Jesus is traveling around. He's healing. He's doing all these wonderful things. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had what? He had what? Compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love this moment. Jesus looks out and he sees hordes of people coming towards him because he's been showing mercy, he's been healing, he's been doing wondrous things, and most people I know, if they've been doing these things and they look up and they see a horde of people with all kinds of problems, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of sin, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of illness coming towards him, it'd be like, oh, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? Oh, I gotta get out of here. Not Jesus. Jesus looks at them. He sees that the religious leaders who are supposed to bring them closer to God have shunned them. He has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless, and look how he responds, verse 37, then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus sees the crowds. He has compassion. He responds, not by running away, but first by hitting his knees. He's like, guys, we got to pray. He brings his disciples in. He says, we got to pray to my father and ask him to raise up workers. If you read on in chapter 10, he begins to take his disciples and send them out two by two to go and minister to this crowd of people that are harassed and helpless. This is a picture of how God responds, how He relates to us. He feels compassion. He experiences our suffering, our pain, our, our places of loss, our places of sorrow. He feels it and He draws near and He responds with graciousness. He steps into it. And He gives the thing that none of us deserve His unconditional, unmerited love and forgiveness. This is the picture that we get of Yahweh God, cover to cover, same God, Old Testament to New Testament, who has been, who always will be. This is the God we worship and follow, the Almighty, the all-powerful, who is marked by compassion and grace. And so this is how he relates to us. The question we have to answer is, so how then are we to relate to him? How do we relate to this God? who is the almighty, the all-powerful. And this is where we come back to that counterintuitive thing I was talking about at the very beginning. How do we relate to the all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who, who like holds everything together, the one who knows every single thing about you? How do we relate to him? Most of us... Most of us, many of us have been told that in order to come near to him, in order for him to come near to us, we got to get our stuff together. Hey, get your act together, clean yourself up, read your Bible more, pray more, stop sinning, do all these things, then God will draw near to you. The one who is almighty, the one who is holy, maybe if you work hard enough, maybe that God will draw near to you and love you. You see, these efforts that we go through in order to feel like we're good enough for God, it's like trying to stand up on water skis. It gets harder than it should be, and you end up getting a water full of face, a face full of water. Yeah, (laughs) backwards there. You get a face full of water. Yeah, that's what I meant. And you can't figure out why. Like, why is my face being dragged? Why is it so hard? Everybody says that it's grace. Everybody says that it's free. Why is it so hard? It's because so many of us are trying to stand up on our own two feet We're not understanding that we have to rely on the one who is bigger than us to pull us out of the water. He wants to do the hard work. He does the heavy lifting. He meets you where he is because he's compassionate and gracious. So how do we relate to him? Well, earlier we were reading Psalm 103, and in Psalm 103, verse 11, I pointed this verse out while we were reading. Let's throw this up on the screen real quick. Psalm 103, verse 11 says this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love, is his love for those who fear him. Now this feels confusing, because we go, wait, 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 he's compassionate and gracious, and yet I'm supposed to fear him? See, the way we relate to him is so important, how we come to him. The compassionate and gracious God is also the all-powerful God. He is also the almighty God. He is also the all-knowing God, the creator God, the one who exists far outside any kind of boundaries we want to put on him. This is the God who is compassionate and gracious. If you were here last week, you remember my story of sitting on the beach and watching gigantic waves pound and feeling the beach tremble underneath me? And I'm like, whoa, that's bigger than me, more powerful than me. When I step into the ocean, I don't, I don't tell the ocean to operate on my terms. I'm, not, I'm like, hey, ocean, uh, you need to knock off the big waves so I'm coming out there, so you better get ready because here I come. Like, it doesn't work that way. The ocean does not respond to me. I respond to the ocean because I understand it's bigger than me in every way, and I revere it. This is the picture of the almighty, the all-powerful God. His compassion and his grace doesn't mean that we take his all-powerful nature and just throw it out the window and think that we can just come to him laissez-faire however we want. He's the almighty. He's the all-powerful. And so we relate to him. We have this holy reverence, this understanding that that we we don't dictate how he responds to us. And that should stir a holy fear in our hearts. And yet, and yet, the all-powerful, the almighty is also the compassionate and the gracious. And so how do we come to him when we revere his name? We fear him. We understand he's bigger than us in every way. But we just come to him honestly and humbly. I love James 4, verse 10. James 4, verse 10 just sums up so much of it. It says this. It just says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will what? He will what? He will lift you up. Do you know that when you come into the presence of the all-powerful God, when we come humbly before him, he says, I got you. I'll lift you up. We don't go, okay, he's almighty. I fear him, so therefore I've got to get all my stuff together. I've got to work on myself. I've got to get everything together so that he'll like me enough and he might draw near to me. Okay, God, here I am. No, we, we come to him. We go, God, I've got nothing. God, I am am, broken. Lord, you know of my sinfulness. God, you know of my pride. You know of the places where I've messed up. You know everything about me, God, and yet here I am. I come into your presence and the compassionate and the gracious God draws near and he lifts us up. He lifts us up. Some of you have been given this message your whole lives that, hey, because of the thing that you've done, or the thing that was done to you, God could never actually love you. Because of the thing I've done, or the thing that that other person did with me, to me, that God would never want to be near to me. Yeah, I can try, I can be a good Christian, I can go to church, I can do all this stuff, but God liking me? God loving me? No, that's that's out of the picture. Some of you have things in your life that you feel like have eternally separated you from him. Some of you have done things in the past to promote your own name, to make much of yourself. You have stooped to levels that you hope nobody will ever find out about. And it hides in the closet of your soul and you just hope that nobody finds out. But here's the thing, the all-knowing, the all-powerful God, he already knows it. The lying, the cheating, the stealing, the shameless self-promotion, he knows about it. Some of you have... Sexual sin in your life from the past that you're going, man, if anybody knew about that, they would never look at me the same. There's no way I could ever be close to God because this thing, it, it separates me. Some of you, some of you in here have been through things that you're, nobody could even understand. It's not, it's not their story. Some of you, some of you have had abortions and you're like, man, the church has told me that God hates me. And so it stays hidden in your life. in this hidden barrier that you think defines you, you feel like God could never actually love you, draw near to you, care about you. And that lie just stays on you, even though you're in Christ, even though you've become a Christian, it's still this lie that just haunts you. We carry these lies around with us. And the enemy, our enemy, just wants to go, yeah, he's the all-powerful. He's the almighty. He could never love you because of whatever. And God replies, he says, I am Yahweh, the almighty, the all-powerful. And I am a compassionate and gracious God. I see the pain you've felt. I see the sin you've committed. I see the shameful things you've thought and have done. I see it all. Just come to me. He says, come to me. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth to give us some moral lessons. Jesus was God in the flesh because God in his compassion saw the suffering of humanity and he took the suffering on himself. Jesus, who did nothing, took all suffering on himself. He crawled up on a cross, was nailed to a cross, died a humiliating, agonizing death where he had been betrayed and forsook by everyone he thought loved him. And then he conquered death and resurrection. Why did he do this? He did this because the Yahweh is compassionate. He feels your pain, he sees your suffering, he sees your loss. How does he respond? He draws near with full grace. He loves you. Stop trying to earn it. You can't earn his love. You can't earn his forgiveness. You can't earn his favor. He feels and he responds through Jesus to offer you an eternal love that never, never fades away. This is why the gospel of Jesus is such good news because it does not sacrifice the glory and the wonder and the power and the might of God while still holding on to his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his healing and his forgiveness. This is why we take communion every single week. When we take communion, we come to juice in a piece of bread. And it's this reminder, the bread is the body of Jesus. The the juice is the blood of Jesus. It reminds us that our Yahweh God, the Almighty, is a compassionate and a gracious God who poured out his own blood on our behalf to show us. He went to the furthest length possible to show us how he relates to us. And he invites us. He says, come. Come humbly. Come with reverence. Come humbly before me. I love you. I see your pain. And I've drawn near to you. And so this morning, we're going to do what we do every single week. We're going to take communion with one another. And as we do that, I, I want us to just do a couple things. We have a slide that we're going to put up here for communion. And there's just two simple prompts for you. Okay, and the first one is this, is just to, to thank God. Thank Him for being compassionate, for being gracious. Thank Him for loving you despite anything else in your life. And then take the body and the blood of Jesus and give Jesus glory and credit and honor. But then the second is this just a simple question for us to wrestle with. Where in your life do you struggle to believe this is true? Where do you be- struggle to believe that his compassion and his grace is for you? And as you take communion, you can discuss, pray for one another. Um, if you need prayers, there'll be some of us at the respond Band over here. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you. The compassionate and gracious God loves you and he sees you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of communion together. We love you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that you are compassionate. You see all the way in to our hurting hearts. You see all the way into our places of failure, our places of weakness. You see all the way in. And through Jesus, you respond with compassion, with grace. Lord, this morning as we take the bread and the cup, would you minister amongst us through your Holy Spirit? And I just ask if there's any place where we are being bound by lies about how you see us, would you, un- would you just break those lies this morning, Lord? Break them. Help us to draw nearer to you as we break bread and as we take the cup together. We love you, Lord. and pray this in Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen.